Welcome to the Evolutionary Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Castles, PhD. Now, stress is a hot topic today, with many people worrying about the degree of stress that they face daily. We know stress in our adult lives is a problem, but I often hear people speak about stress as if it's only an adult problem. Now, sadly, children can face many stressors, some of them quite large, early in life, and this can have a profound and nuanced impact on their development, especially how they respond to stress in the future. Joining me today is Dr. Bree Reed, a researcher focusing on the effects of exposure to early life stressors and the removal of these stressors and the impacts on development of our stress and other physiological outcomes, including some findings that might bring hope to many. I am so thrilled to have with me today Dr. Bree Reed. She is a postdoctoral fellow at the Alpert Medical School at Brown University. She earned her PhD in developmental psychology from the University of Minnesota's Institute of Child Development with a doctoral minor in epidemiology from the University of Minnesota School of Public Health. Dr. Reed's research examines biopsychosocial factors of child development that influence mental and physical health disparities, with a focus on psychosocial stress and undernutrition early in life. Her research focuses on how nutrition and psychosocial adversity interact to influence development, primarily through stress physiology and immune mechanisms. While much of her work focuses on adversity in infancy and subsequent outcomes in adolescence and emerging adulthood, her work at Brown will extend this line of research into the prenatal period. Thank you so much for being here today, Brie. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. <laughs> it, well, your work is really, really interesting. And you did your PhD with Megan Gunner, right? I did. Yes. Yes. That's quite, she is just epic in this field. If I, yes. if that's the right word to use, <laughs> I don't even know. I feel like it doesn't like even the do Like leader in developmental stress physiology. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> so you learned from the best and now are going to fill in her shoes, right? That's your, your lifelong goal there. <laughs> Standing on the shoulders of giants here. So <laughs> I always feel like with this, when I talk to people, I'm like, I feel like I'm building a house on the shoulder of giants that I'm just going to live yeah. in and then look out from there. So <laughs> yeah. Um, so we are today going to go through a lot of your research looking at stress and development. But before we get there, I always ask people, because it's always so fascinating, how did you come to this field? Was stress just something you were, you know, that eight-year-old sitting around being like, I would like to study stress? Or what happened? How did you get there? Yeah, you know, yes and no. Um, I think that I have more of an unusual path into research than maybe the average scientist does. You always hear about people who are doing science and like presenting research when they were five. And um, I always wanted to work in a field that really supported human health and development. But um, that actually took the form of an undergraduate degree in interior design at Cornell University, where I really specialized in designing physical spaces that supported um, health and well-being, like hospitals, um, Head Start classrooms, museums, healthcare settings, that kind of thing. Um, and then I kind of developed this expertise in integrating child development research into the design of physical spaces, um, especially for children. And then I sort of fell into this research group. They actually asked me to join and participate in um, designing a developmentally and culturally appropriate intervention to reduce stunting um, and malnutrition in 
specifically rural Zimbabwe and rural um, Zambia. So um, I got into kind of the nutrition intervention research for a number of years, still at Cornell. Um, and uh, that we were really look at pre uh, looking at preventing inflammation for infants and toddlers in that area. Um, but a lot of the research I realized was not integrating um, stress physiology, even though a lot of these families were really under pretty severe, um, pretty severe stressors. There's a lot of presses on maternal time and demands um, and climate change and kind of uh, climate stress as well. So, um, and as your listeners may know, as you may know, uh, stress physiology is actually another kind of contributor to inflammation. So I felt like if we're really going to solve this nutrition, malnutrition issue with inflammation, we should be integrating more of this understanding of stress physiology and kind of the family unit into it. And that's um, that's why I decided to pursue my PhD at Minnesota with Megan Gunner, who we just talked about. Um, and that has led me all the way here, um, almost a decade later. <laughs> wow. You know, I have to say, interior design, that's a first. I have had a yeah. lot of people start in different fields <laughs> and go there, but I don't think I've ever heard the link between interior design and yeah. <laughs> But it makes so much sense. You talk about that path. And of course, I mean you do think about the interior design of spaces to elicit or reduce stress and elicit calm mm -hmm. and, and everything like that. So it really is, that's really, really fascinating. <laughs> it's a um, journey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can imagine there was a lot of catch up in some of your courses from interior design to psychology for you your know, graduate In work. some ways. Yeah. My undergrad was actually really um, interdisciplinary. So it was like a bachelor's of science. So I actually took a lot of psychology and human development coursework as an undergrad that then integrated into the design work, um, which was really cool. So a little shout out for anyone who loves design and research. Uh, Cornell is the place to go to get both. That's awesome. That yeah. is that is very, very cool. So, I mean, do you still, just out of sheer curiosity here, <laughs> when you're designing your studies, is that like in mind when you're thinking about the setup of how you're doing it? Not just the, I know when I ran studies, I did not think about the room we were in or the mm. space. It was just okay, we've got to do this and this. How can we just get a setup that works? I never even right. thought about the effect of the physical like space on it. So do you still integrate that into all your studies now? You know, I think a lot of it, it was around human-centered design. So really empathizing with, um, with the people in the space, with the participants. And so I think that I've been trained in that for so long, it's impossible not to think about it. But yeah, it can be um, as simple as just graphic design of the materials that participants get um, in studies. So bringing that into it to, you know, is this space, is this confusing? Will this kind of elicit a stress response coming in? Um, but yes, a lot of it is very functionally focused, right? How can we just do the study in the space we've got and run from there? It's, oh, that is, you know what, though, I think it would be so much nicer because having worked with kids too, I think a lot of, I mean, we did have a, a lab that was supposed to be enjoyable mm. for children. And I think right. in many ways it was, <laughs> right? There's There are toys, there's stuff around, but then sometimes I always wondered, was it too much? Was it too little? Mm. Was it 
more attention grabbing than anything else. And that would be where you would come in. You should just come in and design (laughs) all the labs for all the development. I know. Yeah. With all of the free time. (laughs) I know know you have so much of it now (laughs) Um, on that. um, I will keep going then so you can talk about this for ages. But so I want to start because you do talk about stress and physiology and there are concepts here that not everyone's going to be Mm-hmm. always well aware of. I always like to start with a foundation for people because I think it's really important that everyone listening has an idea as to what you're talking about here. So when we talk coming up about psychosocial adversity, stress physiology, I mentioned immune mechanisms. Can you <laughs> tell people what exactly do these mean? What are what are we looking at here in the research? What are the factors um, that contribute to these, particularly in children and adolescents? Yeah, well, I will do my best to kind of summarize. These are kind of three huge um, terms to define. And so um, usually when we talk about early life adversity or early life stress, we're talking about conditions um, such as child maltreatment, um, poverty, in the case of a lot of my research, also orphanage rearing. So growing up in an institutional care setting, Um So it's really about sort of a disruption of the maybe expected experience that children have. Um, And especially, um, I love Harvard Center for the Developing Child. They kind of have this model around toxic stress that is really accessible and a lot of resources there. Um, But it's really about either a severe stressor or a chronic stressor for a child without a supportive caregiver kind of guiding them through that. And so um, that is kind of how we think about stress early, um, early in life. And um, those are kind of exposures to stressors. And then there's also how our bodies respond to the stressors. And sorry, do you have a sorry? Yeah, question? no, I yeah. just want to ask, actually, before you go on to the stressors, I just want to clarify for people here, because when we talk about, because you were very specific about psychosocial stressors. So we're not looking, or maybe you are, but I want to clarify here, when we talk about this adversity, so you talk about orphanage rearing and everything, it's not about the lack of food, the lack of kind of a physical, they've got warm homes, you've got all these kind of physical needs, quote unquote, met, maybe not thriving needs there, but they are met. So these are really, if I understand it correctly, these adversities have to do more with the psychological and social well-being pieces that you're looking at. Is that fair? So that's a great question. I would say that conditions of physical adversity would also kind of come into the psychosocial adversity, like conditions of neglect also involve maybe a lack of access to food, um, you know, homeless and highly mobile people um, also experience, you know, these kinds of stressors. And so psychosocial adversity, unfortunately and unfortunately, is kind of this very broad umbrella term um, for a lot of different exposures. Um, But a lot of it also is this focus on the psychosocial experience, because, um, you know, if you're an infant and a toddler and you have a, you know, a securely attached caregiver who's really responsive and there for you, um, the adversity such as poverty, you might, the individual might not experience that as kind of a toxic stressor, for instance. 
if that helps to clarify. It really does. So I think what we're really looking at is the experience of the stress. So whatever the stressor is underlying it, it may be physical, it may be uh, psychological, it may be social, but the experience for the child is in the psychosocial realm as well. Yes. Yeah. And I think a lot of people look at adversity in other domains as well. And we can talk about, I'm also looking at nutritional forms of adversity and how they intersect with the psychosocial forms. And so we can talk about that later, but um, yeah. To, so those are kind of the exposures. Um, it's a little easier to kind of, um, you know, count those kinds of exposures up in research. It's a little harder to understand the stress physiology piece of it, which is really what um, my research and those of my colleagues have uh, dug into. So that's really how our body responds to a stress. And a lot of people know about cortisol um, as like the stress hormone. And I always think cortisol gets a bad rap, but um, it's really very necessary for our day-to-day -day lives. Um, stress isn't bad for us. It's just part of what we need to do to survive. No one exists in a stress-free um, life or environment ever. And so what we're really interested in is how our bodies um, deal with the stress and in, in development and in chronic or severe kind of stress exposures does our body just change the way it would normally respond to stress? And so um, I always like to think of the body as being kind of in this exquisite balance. Um, we want to be able to respond to a stressor and then regulate back down. We don't want to respond to a stressor and then, you know, have a high level of cortisol just stay high. We want it to spike and come down again um, and kind of find that balance. And Sometimes, um, because our body, if it's exposed to a lot of spikes in cortisol, it just kind of learns that maybe this environment needs a different kind of physiological response. And so it changes how our body kind of releases and responds to stressors and cortisol in turn. Um, yeah, is that... <laughs> That makes a ton of sense. No, that is beautifully put. And I'm going to steal that the next time someone actually asks me about stress because yeah. that <laughs> does define it is. And I always do tell people stress is not cortisol, especially is not in and of itself some horrible thing. It's right. when there's too much. It's when it can't be regulated. It's all of those mm -hmm. things that go together. And so how does the immune system play into this? Because that's another thing that you look at, which is separate but related to the physiology of stress. It is. So to kind of bring it back to why we're looking at these things, um, really early life psychosocial adversity, adversity in general, um, it is associated with increased rates of psychopathology or like mental health disorders later in life. And so it's also associated with more physical health problems later in life. Um, and while that connection, you know, continues to be made and has been made over a very long time, um, what we're really a large area of research right now is trying to understand, okay, how, how does the stressful experience get under the skin, kind of become biologically embedded to influence um, this health, mental and physical across the lifespan? Um, and so one avenue of research is really in the stress physiology. 
Um, and another kind of parallel and complementary area of research is how early life stress impacts the immune system because um, our stress physiology and our immune systems are um, really tightly regulated and they kind of inform and talk to one another um, in everyday life and as we grow. And so just like I talked about the our stress systems and cortisol being in balance and trying to maintain that balance, our immune system does the same thing. So you know, if we get a cut or a scrape or a, you know, a disease of some kind, we really want our immune system to react and help us get better and then kind of come back to that baseline again. And so the idea with studying the immune system is if um, we're exposed to a lot of maybe toxic levels of stress, our stress physiology kind of does a different thing, maybe becomes dysregulated, and that in turn um, can dysregulate potentially the immune system and how that functions. And so we go from maybe these spikes of inflammation and these returns to baseline that kind of help us um, heal and reset. And instead, um, they can kind of become a chronic low grade but elevated level of inflammation. Um, and that is what is um, associated with a lot of um, different kinds of mental health outcomes and different kinds of physical health outcomes across the lifespan. So that's why we're looking at what we're looking at. <laughs> so it is all, I, but it is fascinating how intertwined it all is. Like, I think, you know, I've always felt, and maybe it's because you did an interdisciplinary undergrad too, which I, I also did one. And I found it gave me a great appreciation for trying to tie things in from different avenues mm -hmm. because so much research at times can just pigeonhole in these little areas. And you can't, I don't think, look at stress, for example, as just stress without looking at all these other things in conjunction with it, because they all both affect and are affected by the system that regulates our stress response. So it is fascinating to hear, you know, your work kind of bringing in all these different areas that are clearly related, clearly important and coming <laughs> into it. So as we get, thank you for that, because I think that's a great yeah. background so people know what we're talking about now. And so I want to start with one of your, I think, larger programs almost of research, because you had mentioned orphan children, and mm -hmm. you have a lot of work with institutionalized children, um, yes. as I've seen, a lot of work looking at that. And so I want to go into just generally, what are your general findings? Um, I know we treat institutionalization as a psychosocial stressor in and of itself, uh, and I think rightfully so. Um, mm -hmm. Hopefully, we don't need to explain why that's the case. If you have a question on that, you can Google it. But <laughs> what are the general findings here on the effects of institutionalization on young children, not looking at adolescents, because I want to get to that because you followed up, <laughs> which I find so fascinating. That's such a crucial piece. But what is the main kind of features that happen to children who have had this early institutionalization? Yeah. And to just give a little bit of a background on institutional care. Um, so we're looking really at people um, who were institutionalized as infants um, and adopted, you know, really early in life. So before five years of age, oftentimes before three years of age. 
Um, and the reason why there's been a lot of research on this group is because um, there's a lot of theory around um, infancy and kind of toddlerhood as being this really critical time where experiences of stress kind of can set um, a trajectory for a group of people or an individual across the lifetime. But oftentimes, um, stress, as we know, in these kinds of conditions just continues across um, the lifespan. So if you are in a situation with a lot of financial instability, that doesn't always automatically change at a certain discrete point in time. It's kind of a chronic exposure. So um, that's why this uh, group is really helpful to study if you're interested in early life stress and the long-term effects of that um, to hopefully inform future policy and future interventions, right? How can we really support caregivers of infants and toddlers in this space? And so um, what it's characterized by is um, often the nutrient intake is like mostly adequate, um, but our, you know, the caregiving situation, there's kind of an attachment disruption there. And so the attachment or caregiver figure um, oftentimes the staff in these orphanage or institutions, um, they're doing their best, but they're on eight hour shifts. They're really usually underpaid and, um, it's difficult to take care of a lot of babies all at once. You know, it's hard to take care of one baby <laughs> with, Ask uh, with twins <laughs> and they'll tell you how hard just yes. two is relative to one. So. Right. Um, and so what this means is that uh, the infants in institutional care and the toddlers just kind of get that secure attachment that we would anticipate or that we find in many families, um, you know, here and elsewhere. So um, after they're adopted into families who are usually pretty highly educated and highly resourced, it's almost like um, an idea. I won't say like ideal intervention because there are nuances involved in that and um, adoptees have their own lived experience there. Um, but it's just a very discreet kind of early life stress experience to like a more well-resourced experience. Um, and so there are a lot of um, studies on these people and these groups and um you know, we can kind of talk about a few different things, but in longitudinal studies, there's a uh, one large longitudinal study in England um, that looked at these adults who were previously institutionalized. And um, I think around one fifth of the individuals um, didn't exhibit any, you know, psychopathology problems from childhood to young adulthood. So there is like an immense amount of resilience in this Um in this experience as well, which I always like to highlight um, <laughs> because that's often missed online. Um, but there's also a lot of um, increased risk for, um, you know, ADHD, attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder, um, some disinhibited social engagement disorder, um, some effects to cognition, um, some social um, impacts there. Um, I will say, I always want to emphasize that um, at least we have found that uh, after, you know, nine months of entering an adoptive family, um, most 90% of the children have formed an attachment with their adoptive caregivers, which is wonderful. And 
um, around 70% of those um, seem securely attached in the first couple of years of life. So a lot of secure attachment, even after this kind of stress exposure. Um, so I asked something on that because I was <laughs> going to ask about the attachment. A, I'm kind of fascinated by that 70% because that actually seems higher than a lot of the numbers we're seeing now more generally <laughs> of secure attachment, right? right? I, I mean, but I'm quite honest. Yeah. Like, you look at numbers and I mean, at least in a lot of studies that measure it, we're looking at, you know, 50% is kind mm -hmm. of an average across studies of secure attachment. So these kids are actually developing a, or more likely to have a secure attachment than other children are. Is that like... That has been um, somewhat consistently found across a few different studies. Um, I would say that it can be hard to compare to the general population because oftentimes people who can adopt internationally are, you know, you have to have a certain amount of financial resources. Usually there's social services that are connected with you. You're, there's a lot of, I think, preparation that parents go through anticipating that they'll want to make a secure attachment with their child and a lot of education around that, um, which I think can really help establish that secure attachment that a lot of parents, unfortunately, just don't have access to. Um, I was about to country. say, it seems like what we're doing for adoptive parents should be the kind of parenting programs we offer for <laughs> every parent out there. But my other clarification question on that is, you said 90% have an attachment. So the other 10%, they just can't even be classified even as a disorganized or insecure or what, what does that look like? Yeah. And I have to admit, I did not conduct that study. And so I don't remember the particulars of that. Um, but yeah, I'm not, so I'm not exactly sure about what was going on with the 10% either if it was just like difficult. I mean, sometimes it can be very difficult to classify attachment um, or, um, or if something else was going on, or if maybe this is, you know, nine months after entering a family. So maybe it just, they form that attachment maybe later than nine months. Okay. That makes sense. I was yeah. just curious because you think about <laughs> yeah. it and you feel like I, I it makes sense with the we may not have enough to make an assessment as to where they would go mm -hmm. with something like that but I just that was the first time I'd heard of just nope they just don't have anything there's no right. <laughs> like, I don't even know what that looks like right. um, so with that so we know that they do have attachment which is good mm -hmm. and does this they measure it nine months but does it continue to remain relatively stable later on um, I do, from what I know, I do think it stays relatively stable. It can be difficult to measure attachment, you know, in the same way because attachment looks very different depending on ooh, the age of the child that you're studying. Um, and so that is a great question. I feel like, you know, in our studies with adolescents who were previously institutionalized, we're not looking at attachment security oftentimes. Um, you because should. other relationship <laughs> domains seem very, you know, salient in a different way. But yeah. No, it, it, I just think about it because, you know, there was, well, it, it doesn't really matter. But I was thinking about it just in terms of, you know, we do see, you know, you can have the secure attachment younger, but more look in line with your adolescent research, how things shift. Is that something that could shift 
with it is it you know how does it affect things later on so we'll get to that and yeah. <laughs> um go there but no that is fascinating and just one more like question with that is was the peer relationships because you had a lot mm -hmm. on that that happens so what is happening in the peer relationships in childhood yeah, so there's a lot of really interesting work going on there. And a few of my colleagues have really focused on those pure relationships. Um, but it does seem like, I mean, as we know, friendships and peer acceptance are really important to well-being um, mentally and physically. Um, it does seem like in general, um, post-institutionalized children seem more likely to struggle with peer relationships. Um and it's thought that this might be related to kind of this increase in um, depressive symptoms that we see kind of across the lifespan in this population or other kind of forms of psychopathology. And I will say, I wish there was more research on this. Um, we don't really know exactly what leads to less peer acceptance, but it does seem to be um, about... Um, one of my colleagues, uh, Carrie De Pasquale, actually did this study with um, previously institutionalized children and then kids they knew, their peers that they knew, and then kind of stranger peers to see if the, P the previously institutionalized children were acting differently depending on um, who it was. And it didn't seem to be, there didn't seem to be differences there. And so it seems to be really around... Um, peer acceptance and the other peers being familiar with the previously institutionalized children. And so in general, um, these children tend to trust other children less and maybe withdraw their trust more quickly um, if they experience something untrustworthy by their child. Um, it doesn't seem to be driven by aggression at all. Um, there is kind of this indiscriminate friendliness that we see in general in previously institutionalized children. And so um, this might be, you know, sometimes we see it in like a child just like running up to any strange adult and like being very affectionate and very friendly, you know, maybe not over friendly, but just different in terms of what our uh, social boundaries might otherwise be. Um, and so this might kind of, you know, kids are very sensitive to these social boundaries and social norms. And so that might be kind of part of the mix. Um, but yeah, it's, there's kind of a lot of different things that might be happening there. It's kind of fascinating because on the one hand, you would think that with this greater secure attachment that they're, you know, able to form the secure attachment that that would facilitate social interactions behaviors but i guess you know i'm trying to wrap this all together in my head and yeah i guess yeah. that indiscriminate friendliness a parent who's trying to take you in and build an attachment is going to respond positively to that reach out for something so you actually mm -hmm. get that positive feedback loop in order to create that secure attachment whereas another child might be like, whoa, I do not know who you are. Why are you hugging right. me? Or why are you running up and doing this? Yes. And yeah. therefore, the more rejection. And would some of the psychopathology and stuff, um, or even physiological reactions to stress, lead to a heightened sensitivity to rejection? Um I'm just thinking that, you know, most kids get rejected at some point or another. Mm -hmm. And 
tend to be yeah relatively resilient right someone hates you one day and then the next day you know oh no they're my best friend again and every no they kind of rebound from it is there something about this experience that might lend that to be just less common or more like I said more sensitive to that kind of thing yeah, I'm not sure of research that looks at that specifically. Um, it might be out there and I just don't know about it. But um, I will say it seems like after, you know, there are there is research around kind of fear processing in um, populations who've experienced early life stress and maybe a hypervigilance to kind of fearful or angry faces. Um And so it could be that this is all, you know, it could be that these children are just extra sensitive to maybe rejection or maybe perceptions of danger. And I think social exclusion for all of us is a really (laughs) intensely hardwired sign of um, danger, you know, and so I that could be contributing in some way. I love that you say that because I've not heard anyone else say that. And I tell families all the time (laughs) that the reason we care so much about what other people think Mm -hmm. is that social rejection was a death sentence from an evolutionary perspective and or close to it, not necessarily, but survival on our own is not what we do. And so the fear that we don't have that acceptance is supposed to trigger discomfort, anxiety, fear, Mm -hmm. et cetera, in us. So Mm -hmm. I I thank you. I feel validated again with what I've said. (laughs) Yeah, happy Uh, to do so. (laughs) um, So I'm going to come back. I had another question I'm going to come back to, but I want to now link what you just said, because you published a paper getting to this immune system bit. So we kind of have Mm -hmm. the, the psycho social outcomes, the attachment, the pure relationships. I'm still quite surprised by the attachment, though it makes sense. But these links of later (laughs) depressive symptoms. But you published a paper linking kind of the struggles we have, um, linking early childhood adversity to psychopathology, but through the immune system. And the findings here are relatively mixed. I know we're getting into kind of murky territory, (laughs) but I think it's equally important for people to know what do we have some clear evidence on and what is what's messy, because research is messy till there's enough done. And I think everyone's always looking for this clear cut answer that there isn't necessarily a clear cut answer. And so I think it's important to talk about some of the messiness. Um, But what would be the potential pathway of childhood adversity to psychopathology through the immune function. And you talked a bit earlier about inflammation, but we're talking about a lot of psychopathology here, not just heart disease and everything else. Mm -hmm. We're talking about depression and, um, you know, anxiety. What, what pathway do you hypothesize as this, (laughs) this taking? Yeah. Um, it's a big question. I think, um, you know, part of the research that I've been doing over the last few years has really been looking at, um, you know, the dominant story currently is that early life stress, such as like maltreatment or um, sexual or physical abuse, um, that leads to increased inflammation, which then leads to a higher susceptibility for things like depression. And so, Um, That is one pathway and there could be many things along that. And so for 
um, for instance, if we want to bring the stress physiology into it, um, you know, in there have been studies in women experience early life adversity, they bring them into the lab and put them through kind of the psychosocial stressor to see how their cortisol rises and falls. And so they did find that with those women, um, if they ate something that was like a high fat, high sugar food, it actually dampened their cortisol response. And so, which is kind of adaptive, right? If you're experiencing elevations in cortisol all the time, it's nice to have these tools that kind of help down regulate um, this. So, so when you think this about is... stress eating, right, you know, you kind of get um, maybe some dampening of a stress response, at least short term. So short term adaptation, um, but if this becomes a pattern, then long term, maybe these health behaviors arising from your early experience are, could be contributing to this inflammation. And so I never want to like take the health behaviors out of it because it's really, um, yeah, it's really all intermingled. Um, and so that's kind of one one pathway. Another pathway that we are trying to dig into is that our... Um, I would say that inflammation is a huge term and kind of when you get deeper and deeper into it, um, you know, immunologists and <laughs> people who really study the immune system in a very specific way, it's really complicated and our bodies are not designed for us to study them. They're really designed to survive and kind of maintain this balance. And so um, some there are some parts of inflammation that can change and then other parts don't and they kind of, or they're in feedback loops together. So I will say it's very complicated. So when you see that the findings are mixed, partially it's because our bodies are incredible and very complicated and we should all be grateful that they are because it keeps us alive. Um, but with the previous institutionalized children, we just weren't seeing um, the same pattern of this really um, intense early life adversity and then this later inflammation. Um, they're actually not different than their non-adopted peers in just kind of like the inflammation that we see in the blood kind of circulating around the body. Um, and instead, we had to do some pretty intensive um Immunophenotyping, um, which is a big word, but basically you kind of look at very specific immune cells to see what kinds of markers they have on them. Um, and we were seeing um, kind of markers of immune aging in certain cells in the previously institutionalized kids, but not the inflammation that we might otherwise see. So, um, that was very interesting and also confusing. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So that actually segues nicely into what I wanted to ask. And first off, with the immune aging, it makes me think of the um, short lifespan, the lifespan hypothesis about mm -hmm. how we kind of age relative. So it does make sense from maybe not inflammation, but from the aging perspective to see it. But my question Next one was kind of how do we relate this research on institutionalized children to those who haven't experienced this level of adversity? Because, right. and, and there's two different things that I'm thinking of here. Because the first one is you go online and people talk about stress and you get <laughs> half the people, oh, well, they weren't institutionalized. So it really doesn't matter. You can't even compare it. Like, don't even look at it. But now 
I mean, which is valid in many ways. No, many of us haven't experienced that type of deeply intense early life adversity. Mm-hmm. So therefore, when we look at the research, what does it tell us more generally about how, how can we apply it to other people? But then this makes me go, well, if we're seeing the same levels of inflammation, maybe we don't need that level of intense adversity based on other factors like your temperament. Like you talked about the one fifth of people who just showed no long-term effects. Their level of resiliency was quite high. And despite that institutionalization, they went on their merry way um, mm-hmm. relative to those who may have certain temperaments that may be more prone to stress and adversity and therefore don't necessarily need this type of strong adversity to show the types of inflammation, immune response, you know, psychopathological outcomes <sighs> that we're seeing in this group. So how do we take it? How do we take these findings and put it to something that is, that just makes a bit more sense for for us as parents of other children who, you know, hopefully, you know, have not experienced strong adversity. Yeah. I mean, I think that this is like the multi-million dollar question that researchers across a lot of different domains are trying to figure out right now. So, what makes someone resilient in the face of adversity and how can we either support that or, you know, make that available to others. Right. And um, there are individual differences. I will say again, you know, having a responsive caregiver in context of adversity, no matter what the adversity who can respond appropriately, kind of like we talk about serve and return, like playing tennis with the, the individual or the child and the caregiver, you know, how can they, given the individual differences, the child's temperament and the age of the child and help shepherd a child through maybe these experiences of adversity that they're going through, um, providing this sense of safety and security. That's like a big, you know, that's a big takeaway that's important for everyone uh, all the time. Uh, we aren't meant to do it alone, um, especially as children. And so, Um, I'll just like put a pin in that for now, but yeah, I think, um, like I said before, not everyone is going to experience this intense kind of deprivation, this intense kind of stress very early in life, but it is a very helpful mechanism to understand how do these things kind of reverberate across the lifetime and in what areas some people might be resilient in some areas of their life, like, um, you know, like educational achievement or school achievement or, you know, career achievement kind of things and yet show adversity in other areas such as high blood pressure, a higher mortality rate from other kinds of cardiometabolic diseases. And so I think it just, uh, this is always, I think everyone would just love like a clear cut picture. Like if you do X, then Y, and then everything's good and happy. But um I think that it's very fascinating that (laughs) there are so many differences. And um, I think studying the post-institutionalized kids, again, can kind of give us an understanding about what's going on in the brain and the body while also trying to understand how are they different? How is this experience different from other kinds of adversity? And, 
you know, adversity when you're 15 years old might be very different than adversity at seven, depending on a lot of different factors, even within the same person. Um, and so I think that's really what people are trying to tease apart now. And that's a lot what I talked about in that in that paper. You know, there's a lot of research around inflammation and early life adversity, but um, a lot of it is adults reporting on their previous experiences of adversity, which can be challenging. Um, you know, a lot of them are clinical samples of people who are being currently treated for depression. And there does seem to be potentially some like subgroups of people with depression who also kind of have higher levels of inflammation who might also have this experience of early adversity. So I think in practical applications, it might see, it might just mean that depending on our life history and depending on where we are now, we might need different avenues of treatment and different avenues of care and help. Um, and I think that's kind of where the field is trying to figure out where can we pull the levers and really intervene to help as many people as possible. That makes so much sense. And it I, I think it is so important for people to realize how nuanced and complicated yeah. <laughs> the answer to that is. And I know you put a pin in it, but I'm just going to unpin for a minute because I want to go back because you mentioned at the beginning the idea of toxic stress, which is mm -hmm. something that goes on. And so just to kind of clarify this in case people are still questioning how this all relates and why it's different at childhood is how important is the comprehension of the events, right? Like I think about mm -hmm. a baby who experiences adversity. They have no context to put things in. They have no concept that, you know, if they're in an orphanage, oh, but my food intake is adequate. So therefore I right. should be okay. There's no understanding of why they are really living in a an environment that violates, I would say, their kind of species expectant behaviors of that type of care that kind of as mammals, mm -hmm. we, we come out expecting some level of comfort and, and attachment to people. And as you said, like a seven-year-old might have a better understanding of why, you know, something is happening, um, a 15-year-old, an even different level. So how crucial is it that we incorporate this sense of how an event is interpreted versus just the event itself? I think it's really important. I think it's important, um, you know, Seth Pollack at University of Wisconsin just published a number of papers on this kind of describing how we can move the field forward by really looking at um, interpretation of events. Um, that can be harder um, for those of us who study pre-verbal <laughs> infants and toddlers. Um, it can be really, it can be really challenging to understand how that's getting interpreted. I think, um, so yes, um, yes, and uh, I think that we need more than that in kind of our arsenal to kind of understand what's going on here because, um, you know, there's been, um, Sheridan and McLaughlin have talked about how threat and deprivation might be two different kinds of adversity and might affect the body and brain in different ways. And, um, you know, in contrast, I would argue that um, being deprived of food or being deprived of a caregiver's attention for an infant would be uh, interpreted potentially as a threat, right, to that <laughs> to that person Absolutely. and to that body. And so it kind of gets 
complicated about when when do people kind of interpret things and a seven-year-old might interpret an event as being you know they're within their control and therefore their fault and that's a very different interpretation and oh like this was out of my control and not my fault and I have my people with me those can be very different interpretations of a otherwise similar event so I think that'll be really, hopefully very interesting in the next 10 to 15 years as we try to figure that out. I think it's fascinating because I always think, I think back to myself as a kid and I don't know what I was thinking half the time. Like the way I interpreted events <laughs> right. was sometimes really, really weird. And I'm just going, yeah. wow, if I felt that way at six, seven years of age, what must I have thought earlier? And I do often mm -hmm. find, you know, with families, we talk about even just the interpretation, the fact that we don't know how to interpret how our mm -hmm. toddlers, infants, preverbal are able to interpret things, I think is an equally important thought because so often there seems to be a, a push to assume that children interpret things logically or that they mm -hmm. can take what we think an event is, oh, that wasn't scary. It's fine. Well, it might've yeah. been terrifying for a child. So just the acknowledgement that we don't know how they're going to interpret this event, I think is a really important one for parents to take home because, you know, we don't as children have the same worldview we have as adults, <laughs> right? Right. Yeah. And I think I always want to emphasize, I think there's this balance, right? Because I think in a stable and predictable kind of caregiving environment, it makes sense that a child can experience something scary or something, you know, challenging and still be able to return to baseline because they kind of have that secure base. And so I think I always want to caution people because oftentimes when parents hear about my research, they're like, Oh my God, <laughs> this one thing happened and uh, we'll mess it up. You know, I read online that cortisol will kill my baby's brain or something, you know, something very scary. We all love our children, love the children in our communities. And um, a lot of things are very fear mongering online. And so I always just want to emphasize that, you know, we all have ups and downs and kids are the same way. And that's really how we learn and grow. <laughs> so um, yeah, to just kind of be that responsive and kind of consistent caregiver is the goal. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Sorry. I didn't want to ever suggest that people should be terrified <laughs> of it. It was more what you were getting at is we don't know how they respond. So be there. Mm -hmm. right? right. Because as long yeah. as we're there, it's not, you know, bad things are going to happen to our kids. I hate saying that, but it's an inevitability of life. It's true. And yeah. the only thing we can kind of have control over is that we are there for them Mm -hmm. to help them to comfort them during it and help them rebound from it. Yep. Um, you know, at a physiological level, help them rebound and psychologically mm -hmm. to know that we are that safety net that's underneath them, that we can catch them when they fall. And that's what we'll be there for. So, but not to assume that you don't need to be there because they won't interpret things in a different way was more my point that was so mm -hmm. ill put before because, <laughs> but that is, you know, I do see it sometimes on the opposite. There's the people that are terrified they've done something wrong. And then people that are told, well, I was told I didn't need to worry about my kid being terrified by this because they just won't mm -hmm. see it that way. And I think, well, we don't know. So on the 
erring on the side of caution, yeah, go hug them and cuddle them. And, you know, it's it's okay. (laughs) If you fall off the swing, sometimes you want to go get a cuddle before you get back on the swing again. Right. Yes. Well, and even adults, I mean, if I'm, you know, I find that even in adult logical relationships, someone is upset or feels hurt. It never really works to say, hey, you shouldn't feel that way or don't be upset. That usually, I mean, you can try it for yourself, but I find that in my relationships, that doesn't help. <laughs> so says to yeah. me, don't be upset. I just really <laughs> want to punch him in the face when I'm upset. Right, that's right. How it goes. <laughs> so I think that's uh, a good takeaway there. So I, we've been going here and there's so much here, but I have to get to your research on the recalibration mm-hmm. of the stress response. Because this has just been mind-blowingly fascinating, Um, (laughs) especially because it came on the heels of me, you know, more research into, uh, you know, what we would call the recalibration of the brain as people become parents, um, Mm. you know, or mothers. So I'm going to leave it to you. So I've just thrown out recalibration of the brain. Um, I'll (laughs) let you explain what that is and what it means um, for everyone listening. Yeah, so I will say we haven't done research on recalibration of brain functioning at the moment, although that would be very cool. And I think a logical next step, we, um, Megan Gunner's hypothesis is around this recalibration of stress physiology during certain sensitive periods. So the idea is that in just like an in infancy where our body is kind of sensing the environment. Is this a safe environment? Is this a dangerous environment? How should my physiology respond? Um, The hypothesis is that adolescence is this other sensitive period where kind of before we launch out into the world, maybe find partners, communities outside of our um, family of origin or, um, you know, our, I guess, group, you know, maybe our physiology resamples the environment again and to see, is this the same kind of environment that I'm set up for or is it something very different? And so um, if that environment is much more supportive in contrast to a very harsh early environment, that could mean that our physiology could recalibrate or the other way around. So if the environment is really harsh in adolescence, even after having a supportive um, earlier environment, maybe our physiology recalibrates to that as well. Um, and our one of my colleagues, Marianne Helland, is also looking at this in terms of pregnancy being another sensitive period and this early postpartum period, just with all the hormone changes. Um, that's really what's driving this hypothesis. There's so much going on in the brain and hormonally um, that it might make sense for our body to maybe see what's going on. So We uh, looked at that in um, a longitudinal sample of adolescents and children who were previously institutionalized as infants. They've been with their adoptive families, you know, for years, um, you know, a decade or more. And so we looked at them every year to see how their stress response system was looking across uh, puberty. So this was a really cool study where we did find that as the previously institutionalized teens kind of progress through, there's different stages of puberty, but as they progress through puberty, um, their stress response system looked more and more like the non-adopted stress response system and kind of like our control group. 
which was really uh, very, very cool. <laughs> so uh, we did see it in the stress response system in terms of acute stress, like a, a discrete stressor. Um, I just published a paper where we don't see that in kind of the diurnal or our daily them. Those seem to still be impacted by the experience of early life stress across puberty, which is kind of interesting. So, um, yeah, <laughs> I have to ask on that. So it's so first off, let me just for clarification here, because I've read the paper, they're fascinating. <laughs> but um, so these kids with their stress response, just to clarify, even mm -hmm. though they were adopted out at, you know, under five, and most of them were under three, I, if yes. I remember correctly. Yeah, I think the average um, age is around 15 or 16 months of age. Yeah, so they've like been that, with really these families for a long time. They did show that altered acute stress response all the way up to adolescence. So even though they yeah. had this <laughs> kind of the pre-adolescence, but yes, yeah, yeah, pre-adolescence, that's yeah, because I think it was about 12 when you start, but it's mm -hmm. up to that point they still had this great environment, these, you know, secure attachment, everything, but that stress didn't change until this puberty period. Is that? Yeah. So that's um, what we've consistently find in um, previously institutionalized cohorts is that their stress response system appears to be blunted in response to a stressor. And so instead of mounting that high response and coming back down, it just seems like their body has decided it's not going to mount that response in the same way. And so we call that blunted. Um, and so we do find as they progress through puberty, that the response becomes more, you know, more reactive, which is more like their non-adopted peers um, and more, you know, you go up and you go down. We don't know if this means that long-term, it will stay like this. We don't know if it means long-term that the outcomes will improve. Um, there's some preliminary evidence that it's actually associated maybe with more kind of feelings of anxiety, um, at least in at the same time frame, which could be any number of things. It could be when we experience a stressor, the physiological experience of it, if it's very different than what we're used to, maybe could spike some feelings of anxiety that could either continue or they might become more reactive or it might kind of balance out as they continue to age. But um, some really fascinating um, evidence for this recalibration in this adolescent period. Yeah. It, so many thoughts. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry, just that, my brain. Um, the first one is, absolutely, I would imagine it would go along with anxiety. Because if you've never experienced that stress, because your systems blunted it in recent memory, mm -hmm. you clearly experienced it early in life, which was probably why it blunted. That's nerve wracking. If you're not yeah. sure why <laughs> you're I, and I say it, I had to do a um, echocardiogram. And it was because of COVID, I wasn't allowed to, you know, exercise to get my mm -hmm. heart rate up. They had to inject you with a drug to bring it up and oh. <laughs> to bring your heart rate. It is really nerve wracking. I was highly anxious in there because all of a sudden I'm, my heart's racing, but you're sitting still, there's no reason. And it was like my stress system, something's wrong. We've got to be, you know, what's happening here. So I could just imagine how, and 
12-year-old would feel when suddenly they're feeling stressed to something that they hadn't necessarily felt before. I think that would be somewhat of a distressing event. So that doesn't surprise me at all. Do you find that, have you looked at after if they adapt to that stress kind of at the end of the puberty period? Um, in terms of the anxiety or the stressor yeah, that we the anxiety. do So the, the anxiety. anxiety, yeah, that was looked at, I think, um, by Nicole Perry's group. And she, um, I have to remember, I think it, the effect was pretty small. It wasn't like a huge increase in anxiety. And to my knowledge, they haven't, I think they're trying to do a follow-up study on that now, a few years later. Um, but from what I recall, it was just kind of um, right at the end of the puberty study that we were doing. Um, and so the long-term uh, effects are unclear yet. <laughs> um, so then the other question I have, well, I have lots, but I mean, just to jump in on this one, you mentioned that although the acute stressor shifts, the diurnal rhythm doesn't mm -hmm. change. So what is the changes to the diurnal rhythm from early adversity, so the early changes that are not shifting in adolescence or puberty. It's so hard to say adolescence now because I don't know what time span that covers, <laughs> but approximately adolescence. Yeah. So we looked at kids ranging from um, seven, I think their starting ages were like seven to 15 because puberty can start as early as seven years old. And so we wanted to capture, you know, <laughs> these kids as they experience all of puberty, but um, it was a fun kind of design in that way. But yeah, our diurnal cortisol rhythm follows this pattern where um, right when we wake up, our cortisol spikes um, to kind of get us ready for the day, jump out of bed, maybe hunt for some food. And so um, that's very important for alertness and to start our day. That's where a spike in cortisol is really nice. And then we like to see it kind of come down so that it's at its really low point right before bedtime so that we can sleep. Um, so that's normally what we would see. Um, and with the post, the previously institutionalized group in general, we kind of see um, also kind of this more blunted effect where maybe their morning spike isn't as low and then maybe their evening low isn't quite as low as we would expect. So it's kind of like instead of this peak and then, you know, the rush down, it's more of like a flat line. And so that is something that we do, um, we didn't see any puberty associated changes with that. Um, we did see across both the previously institutionalized kids and um, the non-adopted kids that in general, um, their diurnal rhythms appeared to be maybe what we would term more regulated um, in when they experience context of psychosocial support. Um, and so across all kids, <laughs> so from their peers, from their parents, from their families. Um, so across all of them, it seems like experiences of social support um, seem to really help um, or seemed to be associated with kind of these better, better regulated diurnal cortisol patterns, regardless of early life adversity status. And so does that mean that because if you started looking at seven, these kid had these children had already been adopted out. Is mm -hmm. there a possibility that they may have had a more blunted 
earlier that then shifted towards something better with the right support for them up to the age of seven, that it was a shift that happened earlier as opposed to mm-hmm. not happening at all? Um, the shift was not so dramatic between the groups to suggest that there was this big shift like we saw with the stress reactivity. And so it was kind of like the pattern seemed the same, but there was a little bit of a difference um, just overall in context where there was more social support as opposed to less social support. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Okay. Yeah. I thanks. have to ask now too, because the fact that you're mentioning that stress is blunted here mm-hmm. is really interesting because when people worry about stress in their kids, um, mm-hmm. it's usually the opposite, right? People do studies looking for this higher stress, right? There, mm-hmm. when we get concerned about it, we think there's too much, but it sounds like at a certain point, that's the wrong assessment to be making that given enough stress, you're actually going into kind of a, a hypo-reactive state here with respect to it. So, right with respect to cortisol. So, cortisol, not yeah, sorry, yes. cortisol. Yes, <laughs> yeah. sorry, me. Yeah, with respect no, to no cortisol. Um, you know, because that's what people worry about is they worry about you know cortisol spiking too much and that's wrong. But then at some point, your system does seem to to shut it down and say, okay, enough is enough. We're just not gonna. I can't keep sending that much up. So we're just gonna kind of stop um, or reduce it. (laughs) But at what point does that happen? How do we know, you know, when you look at research here that looks at stress reactivity, at what point do we know a child's in a period of kind of this blunted stress response versus just not really being that stressed? That's a great question. Yeah. Um, In some ways, I wish there was more research on this. It's really difficult to do these kinds of longitudinal studies over a long period of time. Um, I kind of liken it as like a Goldilocks and the three bears situation. You don't want like too much cortisol in response to a stressor, right? You don't want to be over overcompensating for a stressor that's maybe very, you can handle it, but you also don't want to be you know, under responding. Um, and I say you don't want to be, but I think what our bodies are is are doing is actually responding to the environment put in front of them and reacting very intelligently to the environment. So mounting a stress response is really taxing metabolically. Um, and it puts a lot of, you know, stress on all of our systems. And so if it's a it's if it's an environment that you're going to be, you know, mounting a stress response all the time, it might make sense to actually downregulate that response. Um, in terms of when, it really kind of depends on um, the age uh, <laughs> of the cut of a kid. So, you know, we've Megan Gunner found that in. Um, you know, securely attached one-year-olds, they might cry in response to getting their shots, but they actually don't mount a stress response with their attachment figure. Um, and so, you know, it's kind of hard to get a stress response out of a kid who's securely attached early on. Um, and then, yeah, uh, some kids also just don't, and some adults just don't respond to um the stress paradigms that we do in the lab. And so it can be kind of tough to know, okay, is this because they're not stressed? Uh, oftentimes they do tell us that they feel stressed. So is this kind of like a, 
is our are our lab paradigms not enough to activate the stress response or are they kind of exhibiting this like blunted response and i would say that it's really challenging to disentangle these i think that's where you really want a really good comparison group um <laughs> other kids of other people to understand okay, you know, all else holding equal, you know, this is what we would expect. And this is what we're seeing to kind of tease those apart. If that answers your question. <laughs> it does. It's just because it's so, it's just such a complicated thing. Because I think when we look at the research, I see conclusions being made, oh, well, we didn't see a rise in cortisol. And so therefore, there was no stress. And I always go, but wait a second, maybe either they weren't stressed. So you know what I mean? There could be the, they weren't stressed, but it could also be, no, they're overly stressed. And when you look at people who have anxiety or depression, they may just be maxed out in terms of their stress at a given point, right? If you've been activated, I especially think about people long-term, and I am thinking of an older population here, but who've had mm. chronic anxiety or depression, at a certain point, it would make sense that their stress would be blunted or their cortisol would be blunted in mm. response if they've been experiencing it for a long time. So it's always the question as to how do you tell? And then trying to think backwards <laughs> with kids, yeah, when do you tell? Is it that they're not stressed because they have this secure attachment, for example, at age one, they're with a securely <laughs> attached caregiver. But then right. I think about the environment too. And so this was actually one of the things I want to ask because you saw this shift happen in adolescence um, for the acute stressors. Mm -hmm. Did it happen regardless of the environment they found themselves in post-adoption or was there just not enough variability to see, like for those that didn't have a secure attachment, say they were adopted out, they did not have a secure attachment. Did they still show that shift or was it based on kind of the quality of that environment that they found themselves in at the time? Yeah, I don't, we didn't look at attachment early in life, um, partially because we didn't have that on the comparison kids. Um, we have a lot of data on our previously institutionalized cohorts, but when we bring in comparison cohorts to look at, you know, <laughs> it's hard to have 15 years of longitudinal data on them. And so um, when we do look at the differences between kind of, we do hour and a half hour long interviews with every kid and who was part of the study to really characterize um, their life and their stress in their life from school to family to, you know, relationships and all of that. And so when we look at that, we really don't see much of a difference in adolescence between the levels of stress in the previously institutionalized group versus the non-adopted group. And so that um, kind of leads us to believe that it is sort of, it's a reflection that in general, the environment is pretty supportive across both groups and um, seems to be supportive for this. Yeah. The reason I ask is that it made me think about the work on um, Thomas Boyce's work with orchid children. And I know Megan's done work on that kind of difficult temperament and reaction to stress in, I think it was 18 months old that yeah. I remember one study from hers then that you see that supportive environment lead to these really good outcomes in the long term. And mm -hmm. is it part of this kind of, because they're 
hyperreactive to stress, right, without the supportive environment, but with the supportive environment, they, you know, I, I think about Megan's work where you saw the 18 month olds. I can't remember what the stressor was, but if they didn't have the secure attachment, their stress, with, their cortisol levels were very high. But if they did have it, the secure attachment, it was baseline, right? There was not mm -hmm. a big problem at all. It just makes me wonder, is it that accumulation of the positive environment that helps regulate things down the line so that they do mm -hmm. develop, you know, they, they recalibrate. If, if the recalibration is happening across perhaps all children, in this adolescent period, is it the benefits of this good environment building up to hit that period and say, hey, I'm in a great environment. I actually don't need to be so stressed about stuff. I don't need that right. kind of, you know, hairpin trigger reaction to everything and see everything as a threat. Is that part of it that's happening for some of these children as they go through life? And then, you know, at each recalibration, <laughs> what is life sent to you to make you go, oh, okay, actually, I'm going back to everything being horrible. And I need right. <laughs> so, you know, I'm not sure if it's a, it could be an accumulation. I don't, we weren't able to test that necessarily, um, scientifically, because we were really just looking at this, this time. Um, I, I mean, part of it is that we were really only seeing it with um, changes in pubertal development. And so it seems um, it's hard to say, right? It's hard to say like, okay, well, is this environment supportive if it was, you know, not supportive and then suddenly supportive in adolescence? Or do you really need kind of that accumulation that was, of support? Yeah. Yeah. That was kind of what I was thinking. Is it, you know, do you have to build it up all along or mm. can it just shift kind of right as puberty starts and that's what your body starts to respond to? Yeah. I mean, I am never going to advocate for not building up a supportive environment all along. <laughs> Which is good. Thank you. Um, I will say at least um, from stress physiology perspective, there's been a more work around social buffering of the stress response system and, we do find that in younger children um, and pre-adolescents, their parents or attachment figure really buffers the stress response in response to our lab. Um, but even if they have the supportive caregiver in adolescence, it doesn't seem like the caregivers buffering that response anymore. And so, yeah, so the teen is actually um, reactive, more reactive with their cortisol um, even with their parent there kind of helping them prep through this stressful experience, which could be why, you know, adolescence is a really sensitive time for the development of things like anxiety and depression and other psychopathologies. It's a really, it's a really sensitive period, right? It's a really yeah, a it's... tender time, I think for a lot of different reasons. Um, so yeah, the jury's still out, I think, about the accumulation versus like that specific time. But that's fascinating. And and the reason I, I should just clarify is that I think, you know, I 
I am also a big advocate of as soon as you can start to build up any responsiveness if there's been anything. But I know some people worry about at what point is it too late to make changes? Is it? And I'd like to always be able to say it's never too late. And I think <laughs> it's still never too late because if you make the change, yeah. even if it doesn't change stress physiology at this particular point, there's a cascade of positive effects of right. switching things up to become that kind of responsive and have that supportive caregiving kind of environment. So, but it would be fascinating to know if what the effects on this particular component were. That is fascinating about teens not having that buffering from yeah. <laughs> adults though. That scares me because my daughter's entering <laughs> that period. So <laughs> right. But I think again, like it's really adaptive because if you want to be an individual to go out and maybe start your own community, your own family, you can't you know, it's not necessarily that you want to be <laughs> reliant on this one figure for, you know, regulating your response. And they also found that friends didn't regulate the response either. So it does seem like maybe they're kind of out on their own in a feel, you know, navigating this physiological <laughs> response a little bit. It's going to be fun. Um, what yeah. age was that out of curiosity? Did it start at the beginning of puberty too, or was it more of a later adolescent finding? You know, the studies that I remember, I think they looked at um, 15 to 17 year olds as kind of that period where it wasn't buffering anymore. Um, and I can't remember if there was longitudinal work on that or not, if they just looked at kind of like seven to 10 compared to, um, I don't know where kind of the cut point is. <laughs> going to have to look that up because I'm terrified <laughs> and fascinated now. You've yeah. got a long way to go, but I'm like creeping up on that there. So it's, <laughs> so I have to ask one more question here with this. Um, and then I promise we'll, we'll start closing things off here, but, um, you said like adolescents don't have this buffering, but as adults, do we not get buffered sometimes from other people during periods of high stress? So does it return again as we had adults or are we just kind of feeling support without actual physiological buffering? I think that there, from what I remember, there is evidence of buffering in adults with kind of, it's kind of interesting. There's, um, with either partners or sometimes um, people can kind of feel buffered from even like a picture of a celebrity they feel very emotionally connected to. And so I think, you know, that's um, uh, Naomi Eisenberger's research um, in adults, but it was really, um, so that's a very interesting kind of you know, on the other side of the equation, I think maybe adults can find those buffers for themselves in a way and kind of build those relationships in a way that maybe adolescents haven't had the time yet to do. But yes, uh, other people's social relationships can help us buffer. <laughs> So it does come back. So our adolescents may be on their own for a bit, but they can come back and we can buffer again down the line. Okay, that is good to know. (laughs) So just before we close here, this is so fat. I mean, this work is just so incredible and so telling, but of so many questions. And I love that, I mean... I love that there's so much more that's left unexplored, that there's still so many questions left to answer, which is both amazing and and frustrating, I know, because we want all the answers. But at least, you know, you've got a lot of work to do in the next few few decades of time. There you go. (laughs) 
but you did say, speaking of, of future work here, that you're taking your research into pregnancy, the prenatal period here. Yeah. So what kind of things are you thinking about in terms of looking at, at stress reactivity, early life deprivation mm -hmm. from a, a prenatal perspective? Yeah. Um, I mean, I broadly am really interested in how health and disease kind of gets programmed very early in life. And so um, a lot of things happen prenatally, as I'm sure we all know, that's a really another really sensitive period um, for both the, the birthing, you know, pregnant parent and the, um, the fetus and the child growing. So um, my other kind of parallel line of research is really investigating um, how stress physiology affects how our body regulates our nutrient stores and how that leads to long-term mental and physical health. And so um, there's a lot of, um, we know that stress, psychological stress um, can impact how our body metabolizes nutrients. Um, but there's not actually a lot of research that looks at the stress physiology, how it happens. And so pregnancy is this really, um, I'm five months pregnant right now. So I'm going to say it's a quote unquote fun period. You know? Congratulations. Um, thank you. Thank you. Um, to study because, you know, these two organisms are so tightly intertwined and the physiology is so tightly intertwined. Um, how mom's physiology and pregnancy um, really changes her physiology and her nutrient availability and then the offsprings. And then how does that lead to later, um, like either inflammatory outcomes or neurodevelopment, um, and then long-term physical and mental health. So that's, um, kind of what I'm doing now. <laughs> that's yeah. fascinating because I know, I've always wondered just, you know, your own experiences is what you go to. And I've been pregnant mm -hmm. twice. And with my first, I had a more stressful pregnancy out of psychological stress, worry about it and mm -hmm. everything as I went through. But my second one, I was so sick for so long mm -hmm. that I always worried, you know, physiologically what was happening because I was throwing up blood every day for 18 weeks. Like it was oh. just to the point. And you go, well, what effect does that have? And I no. mean, they're... I could blame all their crazy on all of this, but I mean, it also could just be them. So I am always curious. Right. It's always so hard because it's such a minefield, I think, with pregnancy because we feel, I don't know about you, but the weight of everything, it's like I did something wrong mm -hmm. if something goes wrong, even though I, right. logically, you know, yeah, I couldn't help the fact that I was throwing <laughs> up all the time. I really had right. no control over that, mm -hmm. but it feels like you do because it's right. there. So I, I think that's fascinating research, terrifying to try and spread to the public. But when you have it, we'll have to right. have you back on yeah. if you're willing to, to talk about it. Yeah. And we're, I mean, to your point, I mean, I never want to blame moms or pregnant parents for what's happening because it's really, you know, so many things happen. It is a huge physiological event for that individual, you know? And um, our body is really smart and the placenta and the fetus are also very smart and making sure that they get the nutrients where they can. Um, so yeah, we're looking at specifically kind of iron deficiency. And so our whole thing is that oral iron supplementation in response to this during pregnancy might not be enough if there's kind of this low grade inflammation um, 
that might be interrupting this. And so we might need to take other intervention avenues, either stress reduction and nutrition intervention at the same time, or maybe just totally other avenues of intervention, just as an example. So definitely wow. don't want to blame. I know. No, <laughs> blame it's anyone. Not. <laughs> Everyone's it's doing the best they can. <laughs> yeah. And I want to add one thing, because you said, you know, the programming of, of disease in pregnancy, but yeah. just to clarify people, it's still when we think about epigenetics, you can have things kind of programmed in, but that environment after can still shift manifestations sure. of all of this. Yes. So it's never, <laughs> it's not like you've programmed your code and that is what it is. Um, mm -hmm. It is always somewhat malleable, somewhat, depending on what we're looking at and everything. But right. yeah, there is there. So that is fascinating. Well, thank you so much for being here today and for sharing this research because it really is incredible. And I'm very excited to see what you do with the pregnancy work as well, because <laughs> thank you. Me too. <laughs> well, it's, it's lovely because it gets away from our general mindset of just give a pill to fix it. Because I think right. a lot of these things are more multifaceted and um, you know, we may be barking up the wrong tree a lot by taking that again, lack of interdisciplinary approach of saying, well, wait a second, yeah. what causes say iron deficiency, not always just, needing to add more in, but how do we absorb mm -hmm. it? What affects absorption? All these other things that need to go into the puzzle to help mm -hmm. us actually create an intervention for families. So thank you for yeah. doing this work. Um, oh, so thank I you. It's been a joy to talk to you. Thank you so much. That's it for this week. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. And I, for one, can't wait to hear more about these findings as Dr. Reed's work continues. Join me next week as I welcome the head of The Lancet's COVID Mental Health and Wellbeing Task Force, Dr. Lara Aknin, to talk about not only all of our general well-being, but that of parents in particular. And please don't worry, it's not all dire, but it's definitely food for thought. In the meantime, stay safe and happy parenting.